question. It says, in Matthew 24, 20, was Jesus referring to the end times of this earth? If so, why did Jesus ask us to pray that our flight not be on Sabbath or winter? Will persecution only last one week or one season? Uh, I am, if I'm running, if I'm not running this Sabbath, I'll be running next Sabbath. <laughs> okay. So my understanding is that Jesus wove together both the destruction of Jerusalem and the end time events. And some of the elements apply to the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, not, uh, not the end time events. And I believe the, uh, this, this particular part was specifically when the word came, uh, it's time to flee Jerusalem and get out of the city before the Romans destroy it. Pray that you won't have to flee the city on Sabbath or in the winter. And that's what that, I think, was referring to primarily. Uh, Dr. Jennings, love your Bible study class. Thank you. My uh, Bible study uh, men's group all believe Christ took on the sins of the world at the cross and, and were covered by his blood. I explained to them that that is not true. I am trying to help them understand, but they think I have lost, lost it, a.k.a. crazy, and I'm incorrect. Uh, I am trying to use the Bible without Ellen White references. I know you have materials, uh, but I'm having trouble locating them. Any help would be appreciated. So first off, when people use this language, uh, rather than just saying, no, that's not true, uh, challenge them to understand the language. So we're, we're, uh, this is precious language, covered by the blood or saved by the blood um, or cleansed by the blood. There's nothing wrong with the language as long as you go past metaphorical application. And so take them to John chapter 6. And when Jesus said, unless you eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And say, now we believe Jesus, don't we? So do we believe then in transubstantiation, that when you take the Eucharist, it turns into the literal body of Jesus? Uh, Are we talking cannibalism here? And they will immediately say, no, this isn't cannibalism. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Then what's he talking about? These are symbols. And the flesh and blood were changed into new symbols, bread and Wine, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Okay, these are symbols of something. So you have to challenge them. What are they symbols of? And we talk about that. Flesh and bread are symbols of truth that we ingest. And when we ingest the truth, it dispels the lies. And then we open the heart, and it says he pours his love into our hearts. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new life. That's the blood with new motives. So I would challenge, instead of telling them it's not true, I would say that Christ... uh, um, uh, that we're covered in his blood, what does it actually mean? That we have been covered, if you want to call it that, with, and Ellen White uses the, the, the describes in Christ's Opposite Lessons page. <laughs> uh, I think it's page 311. Uh, Christ's Opposite Lessons, page 311. Uh, she says that, uh, the, the, uh, covered with the robe of his righteousness, that, that, uh, when our, th- our thoughts are brought in harmony with, there's not, the robe, uh, woven in the loom of heaven, there's not one thread of human devising to be covered with the robe of righteousness. It says, when our, our thoughts are brought in harmony with his thoughts, our desires are united with his desires, we live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of righteousness. It's not a covering over. It is a transformation of. And as Paul describes, we actually become righteous because we have the righteous life of Christ reproduced within us. And so you have to take them from their metaphors into the reality to which they're point, uh, pointing. And I always tell, frequently tell people, not always, frequently tell people, if you, um, if metaphors are only metaphorical, if they're actually connected to some reality, they're object lessons to teach. If you disconnect it and there's no reality that it's tied to, it's no longer a metaphor, it's fantasy. And many people in Christianity teach fantasy. With something that's not actually in God's reality true. 
And Paul just dealt with this in Romans 14 and other places. It becomes superstitious. So that's how I would handle that. It seems to me that at this point, the SDA church is trying to straddle the fence on the healing model that Come and Reason is sharing and the old guard of God who will inflict punishment on sinners. I read in the current SDA magazine that the president of the SDA uh, wrote, quote, soon Christ will return and ultimately place the final penalty on sin, unquote, uh, on Satan, unquote. And then he goes on in the article to write, quote, we do not have to fear the judgment if we know the high priest, if we know the coming king, unquote. I appreciate the clear and concise message of Come and Reason shares because it really does set us free. Well, it's very interesting, uh, the language used here, um, the final penalty placed on Satan. That is actually not true. It's the final responsibility. In other words, if you look in Isaiah and uh, talks about Isaiah chapter 14 um, at Satan's fall, uh, if you read down the whole progression of what happens, eventually the whole world who are saved, the saved look and go, is this the man who did all this? He's the one? And so recognition comes in the minds of the saved that he's responsible for all the pain and suffering and heartache. All of it bears from him. And that's what's really being described when it, when, in the uh, sanctuary. Um, uh, and, and, that, and, that, and that actual recognition uh, happens in the mind of the saved before the appearing of Christ. Those who are saved understand that truth. I understand that truth now. Okay, This is part of the... Day of Atonement, cleansing of the sanctuary process of healing the hearts, or the, and you know what atonement is, we talked about this before, I've got a blog, uh, actually we're going to have a new magazine coming out, um, um, it's in the editing process right now, on cleansing the bride. Do you understand Christ cleansing his bride and cleansing the sanctuary are the same event? It's the same event. And uh, there's other descriptions for it in scripture as well, multiple different ones. Says the uh, and uh, yeah, I read that quote in class today, so we won't read it again. If God created man in His own image, male and female, He made them. Then God has male and female aspects. That's a statement. I, there's not a question there. Um, I can tell you that the image of God uh, designed in Eden was two sentient beings who come into the unity of love, and in the unity of love, they produce images in their beings operating in love. The two shall be one. And the two were made complementary on purpose. Understand that God's design, Adam and Eve, together are more than either one by themselves. It was purposely designed that they are more together than as solo individualities, even though they retain their individualities. And so it was designed to teach something about the Godhead, how in the Godhead you can have separate individualities that are other-centered loving, and their love and other-centered function enhances uh, their, their overall beings in some way. And this is what happens in a godly marriage. Unfortunately, sin damaged that, and we have selfishness in the hearts, and we have lots of disparity happening, but it is not God's plan that it worked that way. Are the writings of Ellen White considered equal to the Bible? So I will read you three quotations from Ellen White herself, and I'll let that speak for itself. First is, first selected message is 416 was originally published in Review and Herald, December 15, 1885. 
The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to this holy word will be in harmony. Our own views and ideas must, must not control our efforts. Man is fallible. God's word is infallible. Instead of wrangling with one another, let man exalt the Lord. Let us meet all opposition as our master did, saying, it is written. Let us lift up the banner on which is inscribed the Bible, our rule of faith and discipline. That was her first, that's the first quote. Here's the second quote. The Lord has sent his people much instruction, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to a greater light. And the lesser light, she was talking about her own writings there. And then uh, this last one. Oh, that was found in Review and Herald, January 20, 1903. And here's the last one um, found in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 691. If the testimonies speak not according to the word of God, reject them. Okay, you understand uh, this is powerful because every other person in other organizations who, comp- who, who report or, or claim to have special prophetic insights, like Joseph Smith in the Mormon Church, or Mary Baker Eddy, and some of these people, they all claim that their writings correct the Bible. That there were errors in Scripture that need to be improved and corrected. Ellen White takes the position that her writings are subordinate to the Bible, and if they're not in harmony, they should be rejected. It's quite a different position. So now, um, Ellen White's writings, by her own estimation, now, you ask the question, are the writings of Ellen White considered equal with Scripture? Uh, or th- By some, I'm sure they probably are. I think there are probably many who consider it that way. Ellen White herself did not consider it that way. I belong to a group of multi-denominational Christian women who were banned from their churches due to not having a specific medical procedure last year. Among them is a new Christian who studied herself into Christianity while, while in lockdowns. She is struggling with demonic forces and reaching out to the community for support. My concern for her is there are many promoting that she needs to be delivered by someone especially anointed to do so. There's a lot of praying in tongues as well. Any thoughts on how to counter these errors with love and truth without being divisive? Uh, can you also point to, to me to where to go to expand my understanding of these things. Well, first is Scripture. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. And if you go to Scripture and go to the New Testament, they had a lot of uh, people, um, uh, multiple counts of demonic forces uh, uh, affecting people and the uh, apostles' uh, interactions with them. And, uh, and how did that work out? Did they have long, hours-long rituals with smoke and, and uh, chanting in Latin and, and, um, and holy water that they were throwing in, on people and, and, uh, and then had some other people rolling around on the floor with different languages nobody could understand? Do you find any of that kind of stuff going on in Scripture? You do not. Understand it took a word. Be gone. It took a word. Those who are actually operating with the Holy Spirit under the authority of Jesus, it is a word. It's all. You don't have to have any special appointment by some organization or wear special robes or use special devices. This is all superstition. It's all superstition designed to entrap the mind. So I would say what you do is you pray. 
ask God for wisdom and pray with this lady one time and say, Lord, uh, I am uh, I am asking you to send your spirit and your angels to drive any demonic forces from this woman and create a space around her where your spirit can work in her heart. Understand God will honor that prayer. Understand that that woman has freedom of choice. And if she is engaged in any activities that invite demonic forces back into her life, God will um, pr- respect her choice. She goes out that night and goes to a Ouija board she's likely to have demonic forces involved because God doesn't take away her freedom. But yes, if you make that prayer, and then if things continue to persist in her life after a simple prayer like that, uh, I would encourage you to get her psychiatric evaluation. Okay? (laughs) Because I find in my practice that the vast majority of people who believe they're being harassed by demons actually have a mental health problem, not a demonic problem. In my practice of... Oh, let's see how many years. I guess it's been over 30 years now. Yeah, over 30 years. Getting up there in age, guys. (laughs) Over 30 years, I've only seen one patient that I thought had demonic issues going on. Only one. All the rest who thought they had demonic, it resolved with the proper medication. So that's something else to consider. Dr. Jennings, you mentioned last week that the curse was from uh, coming, that the curse comes from sin, not punishment from God. I would like you, please, kindly to explain Galatians 3.13, which reads, quote, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So what do you understand that to mean? That the law is the curse? So when you go to Romans and you read about the law, Paul says the law, you know, I am, I am sinful, I am unrighteous, but the law is a curse to me. No, the law is righteous. The law is spiritual, it says in Romans 7. It's a spiritual. It's a, it's a good thing. The law is not a curse to us. It's a blessing to us. It was added because we needed it. So what's this talking about then? The curse of the law. Jesus was born, same in Galatians, rolling down. You should read the whole context of what's happening in Galatians. These people had uh, exchanged salvation by faith for salvation by works, keeping rules. And, and, uh, Paul is condemning them for that. But in, in Galatians 4 4, we are saved by Jesus who was born of a woman under law. What law is that? He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took upon himself our human position condition. He was subject to like temptations and passions as us. Now there was nothing in him that resonated positively with that. But he was born in a humanity like Adam had in Eden that would never age, never get sickness, never get tired and fatigued, never need to sleep, or a humanity that was degraded, that was wearing out. That had he not been crucified, the the humanity that Jesus have, would that humanity have lived 900 years, 1,000 years, eternally, or that humanity have gotten old and worn out and died? He was born under the law of sin and death. And what is it that diagnoses that condition? The law given by God. And so the curse is the sin condition, which Paul describes in Romans. He wouldn't understand or know if it wasn't for the law given by God, which exposes and magnifies the sin condition. So that's what's going on here. First John 3.20, For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 
What does this mean? Is it referring to how God heals our conscience and brokenness through sin? So when you have questions, especially if it's in the New Testament, uh, and want to get my thoughts on it, I encourage you to, to check the, the New Testament remedy, the remedy New Testament, my paraphrase, and, and see what I wrote about that. Um, and uh, I think that might help. But let's see, it was First John. I'm going to look there and see what it says. First John 3.20. First John 3.20. And that quick, we're there. And it's, uh, what did I paraphrase here? The truth is more reliable than our feelings. And God's ability to heal and restore is greater than our sickness. So be courageous. There's nothing God doesn't already know. So that, that's how I would explain that. <laughs> Another uh, question related to other Christian beliefs, those who teach that one needs to go back over your life and find all the agreements made, made with the devil and break those these binds. They also seem to have gifts of the Spirit, i.e. discernment, and make declarations about what others do and need to do. Uh, how to gently bring them to the awareness of these errors? What scripture could you use? Thank you. Do you understand what they're talking about here? There are people, um, primarily in Pentecostal circles, who um, uh, have so-called gifts of the Spirit, and one of the gifts is discernment, and God has given them to the discernment to walk up to you and tell you, I have discerned that you've got this problem in your life, and you need to repent of this problem. And they sometimes, in some, in some places, in some churches, they'll actually call it out publicly, um, and so forth. Um, this is one of the things. And, and then the, this idea of agreements with the devil, go back over your history. Uh, there's this, this is, I'm going to tell you what you're describing, um, questioner, is superstition. These are superstitions. Go back over every, every, uh, was there a place? Oh yeah, when I was in third grade, uh, uh, you know, I, I did this act and that made an agreement with it. No, no, no. You see, uh, the, the history is not what matters. What matters is the condition of your heart today. When we get to heaven, David will always have murdered Uriah and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. That history is never changed. What changed was David's heart. He had created within him a new heart and right spirit. Lustful passions that would cause him to do a dastardly deed like that were changed, and he became a new person. And you read in David's life after that, he never did anything like that again. And so the, the real issue is not going back. And many people, uh, uh, in Adventist circles even, have this kind of penal legal thing. And they think you've got to confess every sin. And if you have some sin you haven't asked forgiveness for, it remains in the books in heaven. And it will come up in the judgment. You better sure get it. And then they live in fear. And so salvation is actually not based on the grace of Christ. It's based on your, your having a good memory. No, what changes is your heart. My mother was tormented by that. The year that she died, she was just miserable because she was afraid that she would not be able to remember every sin that she committed and to have it confessed. So I give this example in my book, Could It Be This Simple? A young boy in first grade uh, sees another ch- a child with a pen that lights up and, and he's uh, jealous and envious and so he steals the pen. And he goes on through life stealing other things. And in adolescence, he continues to steal. And, and as an adult, he finally gets caught as a thief, sent to prison. 
And in prison, he uh, meets a Christian ministry for the first time, and, and he gives his heart to the Lord, and he is transformed. And, and he eventually gets out of prison, and, he, and, he, and he's active in his church, in his community. He is so committed to being honest that when his questions uh, of how much taxes he has to pay, he leans toward paying a little extra rather than taking any areas of gray. He's never going to steal again. But he never remembered about that pen. When he comes up in the judgment, does the Lord say to him, you, you have a new heart and right spirit. You are honest and faithful. You have been living a life of love and self-service ever since you gave your heart to me. You have been like David, but you never remembered the pen, so I'm sorry I can't let you into heaven. <laughs> Do you see how silly that is? And that's what many people believe, and it's just fraudulent. That's the penal legal model. So, all right, uh, let's see. Uh, in Luke 16, 20 to 31... Uh, a parable of Abraham and Lazarus. Can you please explain these verses in relation to Abraham's bosom? Uh, I would love to, and I'm going to go to Luke 16 in the remedy. Uh, Luke 16, 20 uh, to 31, and see how I paraphrase that. Luke 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke 16, 20. Let's see what you think. Starting verse 19, Jesus speaking. You know the circulating story of a wealthy man dressed in fine clothes and who lived in luxury every day? At the entrance of his estate was a beggar named Lazarus who was sick and covered in sores. He, he would have been happy with the scraps from the rich man's table. He was so bad off the dogs licked at his sores. As the story goes, when the beggar died, angels transported him to heaven and sat him next to Abraham. But when the rich man died, he was buried in the ground. The rich man looked up. Uh, while being tormented in hell, spotted Abraham millions of light years away and noted Lazarus beside him. So he cried out, his voice carrying over the expanse of the universe, Oh, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But as the story goes, Abraham replied, Son, don't you remember all the wealth and health that you had during your lifetime while Lazarus suffered in poverty and sickness? But now he is rejoicing here and you are in agony. Besides, the kingdom of love and the kingdom of selfishness are separated by such a chasm that those fixed in one cannot cross over to the other. He answered, Then please, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers who need uh, to need to know. Have him warn them so that they won't end up fixed in selfishness and suffer in torment. Abraham replied, They have the scriptures. It contains all they need to know. No, Father Abraham, he pleaded, they need more than the scriptures. If someone from the dead goes to them, they would turn away from selfishness, partake of the remedy, and be renewed in love. Abraham said to him, If they don't value the scriptures and won't listen to the instructions God has provided therein, they will not be convinced even if someone returns from the dead. And interestingly enough, someone shortly thereafter named Lazarus returned from the dead, and they didn't believe him. Yeah. Just a, a little comment on that parable. The parable is, a, is an allegorical parable. It has a main point, but the elements also are significant. The, uh, the, the rich man is clothed in, in, in purple and linen kingly and priestly attire. And Lazarus' name is the same in Hebrew as Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, who was not a child of Abraham. And so really what's being described here is the fate of nations. What happens after Israel dies? The priestly, kingly nation. 
Judah, you know, Judah's five sons are put into the framework of the parable. So it's the afterlife of, of the nation of Israel after its rejection is in torment, perpetual torment, and so on. So Jesus is actually doing a little eschatology, or, or not eschatology, but prophetic future telling by talking about the fate of nations. And there's been some pretty smart Messianic Jews that have figured that one out. I like that. That's nice. Thank you. Looking at probably. So next uh, is, is righteousness is love, and love is the light and the life of God. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him, not by painful struggles or wearisome toil, not by gift or sacrifice. Is righteousness obtained, but by the free, but, but it is freely given to every soul who hungers and thirsts to receive it. Mount of Blessings, page 18. Care to share thoughts. So, yes, uh, we, after we fell in sin, we have nothing within it. We can't generate love, and we can't generate righteousness. This is what it says in Romans 5. 5. He pours his love into our hearts. Uh, he told the woman at the well, if you would, you would have the water of life freely, and it would well up inside you and flow over to many. But yes, love and righteousness are a gift from God that we receive in, in, in our faith and trust relationship with him. Aside from the Sabbath school guide, what other study reading plans do you make use of? Uh, none. That was an easy one. I have been studying Acts, and it appears that Paul still observed the Jewish holidays and traditions. Uh, why should we also? Why should? Why and should we also? Passover, etc. Um, I am not convinced that that Paul did or didn't do that. I, I'm not sure about that. Um, I know that the New Testament Paul was an advocate that the that the uh, New Testament converts uh, were not expected to do any of this stuff. Um, there were only three requirements placed on them, and certainly the the festivals were, were not to be observed and kept. Um, I think that um, that the shadowy festivals uh, teach an object lesson that is important for us to understand. But we are to be living the reality of what the theater was teaching, not going back and theatrically acting out something um, that many people will do uh, rather than uh, experiencing the reality to which it pointed. And if you remember our, our um, seminar, if you haven't watched our seminar, go to the Common Reason website and go to the resource section and find the link for the seminars, and you'll find one on the sanctuary. And uh, go through the symbolic, symbolic meaning of all the elements there and, and the uh, overview of the, uh, of the feast days and what they're teaching. They're actually teaching the fall to the earth made new on an annual cycle. As soon as Adam knew sin, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He passed over them. And all the feast days teach a progression, a day, uh, Passover when Jesus came, uh, the uh, Pentecost, uh, the day of trumpets, uh, and, uh, and then ultimately we will tabernacle with God and an earth made new, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. So they teach the progression of that in the feast days. It's okay to study them, but I don't think there's any... Um, there's anything. I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to act them out, but there's no salvific benefit from it. Uh, should a nation that has worldwide influence use its power and influence to restrain evil? So um, my view is that um, God has, Romans 13, allowed human governments to be in position to provide order to society and to restrain those who would overt- overtly harm others. So yes, nations should restrain evil, uh, within the parameters of their authority. So the United States should actually restrain evil in the United States. 
and then use their influence to help others restrain evil so they can influence through various means to encourage others through training of police forces and and providing uh, funds or other things for other people who want to put in practice their um, systems of restraining evil in their nations. But I think you find uh, big problems when you can, when you uh, go down the trail of um, uh, being the world meddler. How do you explain Hebrews 10.25? And what will we do with that, guys? We will go to the remedy, Hebrews 10.25. I don't even know what it says. It's just how you explain it, so I have to look it up anyway. 10.25. So Hebrews 10.25 says... Don't stop meeting together as some have done, but continue to encourage each other and do so even more as you see the day of uh, ultimate deliverance approaching. I think that's fair. That's what we do. We want to meet together and encourage each other. There's strength and we help each other as we grow. So I, I, I support that completely. And we're almost done here. Let's see. Uh, I have been attending church since my childhood and for the last two years I've been worshiping home, at home and, and really feeding myself with spiritual food uh, as never as I never did before. Oh, that was maybe related to the question above. Okay, uh, but when you're feeding yourself at home, and there's a place for that. When you get an injury, you go home, you go to the hospital, and then you go home, and you're on convalescent leave, and you until you gain strength. But then, but then you get back out in, and we have a uh, opportunity to serve other people. And as you're growing in God's grace, then you have to be a light to the world. And there is something about your own character that develops as you interact, share, and minister to other people that will not grow in isolation at home. It seems so many want punishment justice done for sin, harm committed by others to them uh, or this earth. And my thoughts on this desire does, in my thoughts on this, This desire does not reveal a changed heart, but a misunderstanding of God's ways. Should we instead desire the remedy, the remedy to harm? Would this signify change? Yes, of course. This is what Jesus actually prayed about. Um, pray for those who harm you. Um, uh, if you uh, love your enemies so that you can be children of your Father in heaven. Uh, really, this is the, the big end-time issue, guys. As the beast rises, the beast is not going to rise to set up Satan cults. The beast is going to rise to do some justice, to, to correct some wrongs. And the problem is it's going to use the methods of Satan to achieve that goal, coercion, force, uh, imperial punishment and so forth, and the and the righteous are going to be tempted to be drawn in to use those methods to retaliate against those who've done wrong. And many Christians, when when Satan comes impersonating Christ, he is not going to come with horns and a red pitchfork. He's going to come as a majestic being, speaking melodiously, talking about love, doing miracles, and saying that we just need to return to worship me and worship God. And I love you so much, but justice will require that if you don't worship me, you'll have to be punished. And I don't want to punish. You guys, please worship me so that we can have a loving relationship. But if you don't, you can't buy or sell. I'm going to have to sanction you. And then I'm going to have to imprison you. And eventually I'm going to have to execute you because that's what justice requires. This is our God. We have waited for him, many will say. And this is the vast majority of Christians are looking for a God, and they're looking for a God who would use his power to torment and kill those outside the walls of the New Jerusalem as long as they deserve, torture them, and then kill them. That's what they're looking for. Yes. Scripture says that the Lord says, vengeance is mine. And that has been a favorite text for a lot of these people that are looking for justice. But unfortunately, they don't realize that vengeance of God is to make 
a friend out of an enemy. That's right. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly right. If, if you had an opposing um, group of, of, of soldiers that were attacking you, and you could somehow turn all of them to your allies on your side, you've just defeated the other army. <laughs> okay? So, uh, and then final one, it says, um, alternate news outlets are discussing the collapse of the dollar very soon. How will this go along with no buying and selling unless you have the mark of the beast? Is it possible that we will be under a new economy? Yeah, um, I think, uh, yes. I think what's been happening since COVID, and it's all orchestrated by people that are way more powerful in the world systems than I am, but if you have discernment to see, uh, this is all, uh, the whole COVID shutdowns and lockdowns and all this stuff was structured to destroy middle-class American income to give a justification for hyperspending of the U.S. government to increase the debt, to devalue the dollar, to destroy the economic power of this nation. You're going to see the same thing happening right now with the oil. You know why the gas prices and everything are going up and we're probably going to have a food shortage? This is, this is, this is not driven by what's happening in the Ukraine. This is purposely done by the current administration shutting down our own production in the fields that we have. We, uh, if you remember, just a little more than a year ago, gas was $1.60 a gallon. We were completely energy independent. We got no energy outside of our own re- our borders. We produced it all. Now, as soon as the new administration went in, they shut down the pipeline, shut down our production, canceled a bunch of the, the, the leases, and started spending billions of dollars to Russia to buy oil and gas from them. And what do you think they did with that money? They attacked Ukraine. I mean, this is crazy what's happening for people that aren't really looking, but this is purposeful. This is part of those globalists who want to do away with nation states, and they want a one-world government. And in order to do that, they need a one-world economy. And so you can look this up. This is not conspiracy theory. The people are out there purposely promoting this. They want a digital currency that is programmable. When you get whatever, uh, we're really close. How many of you, when you get paid right now, it's electronically deposited into your account? You understand what's actually deposited is nothing. You just have numbers change in 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 a computer file. There's actually no substance there. Money now is nothing. It used to actually be gold and silver. And then when they had the, the paper money, it was directly tied to gold. And so it actually had some, some substance behind it. Now the Federal Reserve currency just is a promise, a promise. Uh, but now they're going to move away from, it's not even a little piece of paper or coins. It is just little zeros and ones they put into a computer account. It's nothing. And, and, and so we're really close, and then what they want to do is they want to get rid of the dollar and whatever they're going to call it. It'll have, it'll have a, a numerical value to it, whatever it's called, but it's digital and programmable. So when you get it deposited into your account, it can come with, with programmable tags, meaning somebody in the government or your employer, either one, employers or government, tags money recognizing that, uh, that you smoke. So the money can't be used to buy cigarettes. You go into a store and use your digital account to buy, oh, no, cigarettes can't be purchased with this money. It's programmed. You can't. Or you actually overweight, and so you can't buy sodas. Sodas can't be bought by you with your money because they, they're they really looking out for your health. Okay? This is where it's going. Or, uh, well, Come and Reason Ministries talks against the injections, and you're trying to make a donation with your money to that ministry, and they are actually on the censored list right now, so your money can't be donated to them. 
This is the vision. And this is what they want to do, programmable money. And of course, uh, I don't know if you know this, they've already been testing this in small groups. The uh, way you'll do you know, some people right now have the Apple Watch, and they pay with it. They use the watch, boom, boom, boom. They don't carry money, they just use the watch. That's going to be transferred to a chip in your hand. That chip, and they've already done this. They have those little chips, and they're testing this. People have these in their hands right now, and you just wave your hand over the thing, and it's got your account and all your information in it. This is, this is the future as they see it. So, yes, I think this is likely. And what, what does Jesus say when you see all these things happening? <laughs> Lift up your head. Redemption is drawing near. Don't get frightened, folks. Don't get frightened. You know, uh, uh, he also used the metaphor of a woman in labor, right? And for any of you who actually were pregnant and went into labor, when your labor started, did you know there was going to be some pain involved? Did you know it was going to hurt? Not that. But did you did you did you know that? And because there was going to be pain involved, did you did you pray, Jesus, put this off for nine more months, please? <laughs> did you want to put it off? Or even though it was going to be uncomfortable, did you want to go through because at the end there was delivery? Jesus said these are the beginning of the labor pains. But at the end there's delivery. Don't look at the pain. Look at the delivery. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your promises. Pour your spirit out. Solidify and seal us into your kingdom. Settle us that we cannot be shaken. Enable us to, to be your witnesses because there's so many people out there, Lord, that really don't understand that what's happening. And, and uh, we just would love to see hearts and minds turned back to you that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.